A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and not impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. Today, we have something extremely special for you. We're going to dive into the world of modern-day exploration, field research, glaciology, and why all of that is so important to understand as we work to fight anthropogenic climate change. And we have an incredibly special guest to discuss it. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I need to say I am beyond excited for today's conversation because live from the tiny island of Svalbard, a mere 800 miles from the North Pole, I have an absolutely amazing guest that I've been wanting to talk to for quite a while now. Here with us today is the absolutely incredible Dr. Heidi Silvestra. Now, Dr. Silvestra is a glaciologist and international fellow of the Explorers Club, currently works at the AMAP or Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program as part of the working group to the Arctic Council. She leads several expeditions every year and was the inaugural winner of the Shackleton Medal for Protection of the Polar Regions. In other words, you can't get a better person to discuss glaciers. And that is why I am so excited to say, Dr. Sylvestra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you for having me. Really good to to be with you today. Oh, it's my pleasure for sure. But listen, my intro was pretty paltry when you look at everything you do. And while I know some of our listeners already follow your work, for those that might not know you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you landed in such a fascinating field? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, I, I was born in the French Alps. I literally have no excuses. You know, it would be very hard for me not to love mountains and ice. I was literally born in it. And I remember spending my entire childhood just hiking, climbing, mountaineering. And it's only when I met a mountain guide who told me that people can get paid to study glaciers that I thought, hang on, that sounds like the coolest job in the world, literally. And um, and I was lucky enough to, I think, to meet the right people, meet the right teachers, professors, to guide me in the direction to become a, a glaciologist, which is uh, what I am today. That's amazing. Now, where in France? We're in France. Uh, in I was born in the little town of Annecy. And no I way. I was up- just, I just drove through there. You're joking. You yeah, were there? No, I was. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I went to uh, Val d'Isere. Did I say that correctly? And uh, flew it, flew into the Geneva and then drove through uh, Annecy. Oh, you were right there? That's crazy. We could have crossed paths. It's a beautiful town. <laughs> it's an absolutely gorgeous town with the lake and everything. It is so nice. And, you know, I think people there are really animated by this profound love and passion for the mountains and they care deeply about these environments and they feel a little bit i mean not just a little bit but pretty sad to see how quickly these environments are changing yeah changing they are but before we nerd out on the science bit and glaciology in particular 
Let's talk a bit about expeditions, because I think no matter if you're in banking or law or even a personal trainer at a gym, the idea of being an explorer captivates all of us. And as a field research scientist, you get to live that. So paint the picture, if you will. What is it really like? You know, I think there are many things that attracted me into becoming a glaciologist, but the main thing was all about being out there in the field in these really wild and, and remote environments. And I made sure that I would become a glaciologist who wouldn't stay behind their computer. I really wanted to be the one, you know, cutting through the ice and, and digging holes and collecting ice cores. So for me, an expedition is is a means to a goal. I really need to be out there in the field to understand what's happening. And sometimes it's very hard. For example, you know, when you're on an expedition in Antarctica, you're really, really far away from everything and you're out there for weeks and sometimes months. And you really have to be able to rely on your skills, but most importantly, on the people who surround you. And I think there's something really, really special about being there with a team of people who, you know, you have to kind of entrust with your life. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this is not just the team, but also feeling the power of the environment around you. I mean, when you're in the Arctic or in Antarctica, you really understand how strong, how how small you are also facing this environment. And I think this is perhaps something we have forgotten that, you know, nature is powerful. And when nature isn't very yes. happy, it will very quickly make you understand how strong it is. And I love the, the, the humbling feeling you get when you're on expeditions. You know, I have never experienced the Arctic or Antarctic, but I've spent plenty of my life out on the high seas and just experiencing the sheer power of nature, right? That in realizing you are so small and completely inconsequential to its rhythm and movements that it really makes you think about your safety as a priority, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right. Now, your list of expeditions is expansive, to say the very least, all across Greenland's Svalbard, the tropics, South America. But I want to focus in on one of your most recent expeditions in Svalbard, as it was a really cool one, and not just because of the research, but because you did something that I think was absolutely brilliant. You live your own message of fighting climate change, and you did a carbon-neutral expedition. How did that come about? Yeah, you know, Brian, I'm I'm a scientist. And, and what we do, us, the scientists who study the ice, the climate, is we try to make people understand that we collectively need to reduce our carbon footprints, that we need to be better in our daily lives and we need to reduce our impact on the environment. But when you look at polar research in particular, um, I think 99.9% .9 of the research we do in the Arctic or in Antarctica is using fossil fuels. I mean, we need to be really upfront about this, that the carbon footprint of a, a polar expedition is, is pretty huge. There's, there's a good reason why we use fossil fuels, because we don't have many other options, because we're, you know, because the clock is ticking and mm -hmm. we need to collect the best possible data no matter how extreme the environment is. So it's it's because of safety, it's because of, of the time we have left to collect the best possible data. But I thought, 
hang on, let me try to create an expedition that kind of, you know, walks the walks and, and, and talk the talks. And I think it's very important for me to, to try to lead by example. And so we, we tried something. We didn't invent anything. We just tried to do an expedition like in the olden days, you know, we spent a month on skis pulling all our equipment behind us. I was with three amazing uh, women who are all scientists and we decided to cross a big portion of the archipelago of Svalbard. And so for us, we wanted to show that it is possible to do science that is done in a more respectful way, a science that is perhaps a little bit slower, but that is truly in tune with the environment. And what we did for a month is actually to study how the burning of fossil fuels impacts the environment up here on Svalbard. We studied um, the deposition of black carbon, which mm -hmm. is, you know, soot, basically air pollution. And when air pollution lands on, on white surfaces, on, on snow and ice, it makes these surfaces darker and, and catalyzes their melting. So what we tried to do was 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 great, but in reality, it was extremely hard. It was absolutely horrendous. And I think my knees uh, are still suffering from the physical hardships of this expedition. We quickly realized that it's not it's not realistic to think that all polar research should be done this way. But I think it's important that we find other avenues to do research and that and that we lead by example it's very important i couldn't agree more but let's go a little bit further here did it feel different i mean obviously aside from the physical nature of it <laughs> i'm tired after four days of skiing so i can't even <laughs> begin to fathom what a month on skis would feel like but without your normal snowmobiles how did it feel when you were out there i mean no engine sounds none of the smell from fuel you're just enveloped in the the raw nature. So describe that experience for me. Yeah, I mean, there's something so romantic, I think, about spending, you know, all these days out there in the field, camping out and and just using your own energy, your own muscles to power your mm -hmm. expedition. And I think to me, it was really such a wonderful way of connecting with the environment because you notice a slight change in the wind, you know, the noise that your skis make when you're skiing over the sea ice, for example, uh, you notice the changes in temperature very, very quickly. And I think this is really precious because you are fully immersed in this environment. But at the same time, you are so extremely vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And what we what we got to experience that was back in, in 2021 was actually pretty scary. I mean, we decided to to uh, be uh, to, to hold our expedition during the months of April 2021. And April is typically a great month in Svalbard. It's it's very cold, but which is great. I mean, you want snow, you want ice to be able to travel on skis. But the, the weather is typically very, very stable. You have really high pressure systems and yeah. you typically wake up in the morning and you know the weather is going to be great. And actually, for the first two weeks of a month-long expedition, we experienced something I had never seen before in Svalbard. We had the most scary, the most powerful storms yeah. I had ever seen in maybe 15 years of, of spending time on Svalbard. And what we 
what we quickly realized is that all these storms, all these blizzards, were truly the expression of climate change. <laughs> and we know that today Svalbard is the fastest warming place on Earth. It is truly the epicenter of climate change. It is warming six to seven times faster than the global average. It's the one place in the Arctic that is warming faster than anything else. But for us scientists to be out there and to really experience this firsthand was extremely scary. But at the same time, we came back from this expedition with, I mean, let me tell you, with such a rage to communicate on these issues and to tell the world that, you know, climate change is a reality in the Arctic and that we need to act now. And that's a really critical point. And we'll dive into climate change momentarily. But I can't help but think that maybe I need to change the intro to this podcast as it says the Arctic is warming two to three times faster than the rest of the globe. Yet your own research there in Svalbard is measuring six to seven times faster. And also, I find it interesting is before I started following your work, when I give speeches, I just happen to pick Svalbard as it's amazing to me the number of times that Svalbard is warmer than where I am here in Minnesota. And that's what, just over 2,300 miles or 3,700 kilometers further south? And to be able to show those two places on a map and say, look, Svalbard is 7 degrees C warmer than Minnesota today just really blows people's minds. That is wild. What we're seeing is that this environment in particular is, is changing so rapidly that that. Even our science is struggling to catch up with the speed of change. Wow. Okay, so let's dive into glaciology a bit. Perfect. First of all, why do you like ice so much? Seriously, <laughs> I know avid ice climbers that don't love it as much as you. Where did this love or should I say passion for ice come from? You know, I it's hard to explain, but I'm I'm pretty obsessed with ice and I think I'm I'm totally hypnotized um, by these glaciers, by, by the ice that they hold. There is something really magical with the, the cryosphere, which is all this ice and snow regions in the world. And, you know, when I get to visit a glacier, to me, it's almost like visiting, you know, an elder, you know, some kind mm -hmm. of entity that has been here for a very, very long time that has experienced, you know, warmer and colder temperatures on Earth, that has a lot of stories to tell us. And, and we need to respect these elders. We need to respect these glaciers because, you know, they are kind of the, the climate archives of our planet. You know, the, the ice has a lot of information to, to share with us. And we know that the air bubbles that are trapped in glacier ice are a kind of mini atmosphere samples from thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of years ago. And I really like to, to think of glaciers this way, as the elders of our planet. Um, they're also incredibly beautiful. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, but when we approach a glacier, there is, you know, the sheer size of, of the ice and there are the, the sounds that you hear, the cracking sounds or, or when a glacier is, is calving an iceberg. And the colors. Yeah, it, it is absolutely magical and a little bit scary at the same time. Yeah. But also 
this ice matters. This ice is so very important because ice and snow hold basically 70% of our freshwater resources on Earth. But also when the ice is melting, it, it increases sea level rise around the world. So for me, you know, there is this duality, these two very important things, whereas Ice is beautiful and, and absolutely magical, but it's also incredibly important. So talk to me a little bit about that. Why is glaciology and the study of ice so critical within the climate change conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe I should start by saying that um, glaciers are, are probably some of the best barometers of climate changes. I mean, a glacier is, is something very, very simple. Uh, it is born through the accumulation of snow. You know, if you look mm -hmm. at a very tall mountain in the U.S., and if it snows on this mountain uh, year after year, and if that snow doesn't totally melt during the summer months, snow will keep on accumulating. And after a certain amount of time, you will get ice. Mm -hmm. And therefore, this ice is very sensitive to changes in the amount of snow that it receives and also very sensitive in, in the changes in temperature. So temperature and snow are kind of the two main ingredients upon which glaciers uh, depend. And so today what we're seeing is that global, as you know, global temperatures are rapidly increasing. Um, precipitation rates and pre precipitation states change very, very quickly. And therefore, glaciers all around the world are reacting. And what I love about the glaciers is that they're making the invisible visible. I mean, one of my colleagues used to say this all the time. It's very hard to see the changes in temperature. It's very hard to see CO2 concentrations, right, increasing in the atmosphere. But when you look at a glacier receding, retreating, deflating, I mean, getting smaller and smaller every year, you know that there is something happening. You know that the climate is changing. And for that very reason alone, it is very important to study these glaciers because they're making the invisible visible. And they're telling us that something is happening and that we need to investigate this further. You aren't wrong. And to have something visual, I mean, something real beyond a colorful chart or a graph, something tactile, if you will, makes climate change real and is incredibly impactful for sure. Now, I don't know about you, but when I give talks on climate change, nearly everyone seems to know about the impact on sea levels that glaciers in Greenland and Antarctica can have. But let's divert from the poles for a little bit. What about, say, the snows of Kilimanjaro? You know, personally, I've always dreamed about climbing tropical glaciers, so Please know I don't feel this way, but I think it's important to understand why should we care about those? Mm. Why should we care about a glacier that's not going to impact sea level rise? Why do they matter? I love this question and I care so deeply about these tropical glaciers. You know, I have this project at the moment called The Last Tropical Glaciers and we try to raise awareness about these glaciers that are basically straddling the equator. I mean, these are, there are about 3,000 glaciers left um, at very low latitudes, but very high altitudes so they can survive. I mean, they need to, to be protected by the altitude of very tall mountains to make sure they are in an environment that is cold enough for snow to fall. And today, I mean, let's face it, these tropical glaciers are tiny 
they're very, very small. I mean, think about the glaciers, as you said, of, of Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, they're just scattered on the plateau of, of this beautiful volcano. And do they matter? It is a very fair question. And I think there are two things that we need to understand about these tropical glaciers. That, first of all, they're still there. So, so they still matter for the ecosystems where they are. You know, they create some kind of a microclimate. The entire ecosystem has developed because there is ice nearby, because there is therefore water and, and also low temperatures. And what you find there is an ecosystem that is so extremely biodiverse. I mean, there is nothing quite like it anywhere else in the world. Uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, I got the chance to go there with my brother, actually, a few years ago. And I was as Furnished. Oh, oh, so lucky. That's amazing. Oh, you, I mean, if you get the chance to go there, you, you wouldn't believe it because w what you see there are endemic species, are, are really plants and animals that you cannot find anywhere else. So this is very important to try to preserve the biodiversity. But also when we think of glaciers, we think about water. And this is a, a very fair question. You know, do these tropical glaciers still matter? Well, truthfully, the glaciers of Mount Kilimanjaro are really, really small today. And they don't bring a volume of water to the nearby community that is meaningful enough to be the only reason why we should protect these glaciers. But the mountain itself matters because the mountain forces clouds to precipitate. And so just the sheer altitude of the mountain creates a lot of water, actually. So this is important. But one reason why these tropical glaciers matter so enormously is also because of their cultural importance. And you know, this is something that that we tend to forget. You know, I, I was born in the French Alps and, you know, we care about these glaciers, but it's not like we have traditions. It's not like we have belief systems um, associated with these glaciers. But if you look at the glaciers of Mount Kilimanjaro, the glaciers of, of Colombia, where I do a lot of work, or even the glaciers of Papua, because there are still glaciers there, um, where the nearby communities have really strong belief systems around these glaciers. I mean, some of them understand that these glaciers uh, matter because they bring water, even though it's not a lot of water anymore. But water means life. And so for these communities for a very long time, the only reason why they would stay there in these mountains were because of the glaciers. You know, they believe that their gods and goddesses were born where the ice is. And we, I think we sometimes forget or omit the importance of the of the disappearance of these glaciers on the culture of these communities. And I think this is something we should deeply respect. Uh, we should understand and, and also make sure that we protect these glaciers for this very reason. So yes, the water doesn't matter that much anymore, but the cultural impacts are very important. So brilliantly said, and a wonderful reminder that just because something may not impact us or we may not subscribe value to something does not mean that that isn't of great significance to someone else. And that's something we often forget in the industrialized world, but would do well to remember. But I want to dive in on these tropical glaciers briefly, as it's something we rarely talk about. How long has your work on and around these been going on? 
Yeah, well, it's it's been it's been going on now for a couple of years, and I'm, I'm really hoping I'm really hoping to be able to get back to Colombia, uh, hopefully this year, um, because you know I've been talking about the cultural impacts, but luckily there is still a lot of research to be done on these glaciers. And just to mention the incredible work that is being done by the local scientists in Colombia, by Jorge Luis Ceballos, who is the, the main glaciologist there in the country, um, we need to understand what's happening to these glaciers because, because they are the ones disappearing the fastest at the moment. Uh, when we're seeing what's happening to Colombia, these are the glaciers that are on the front line. And if you better understand the disappearance of tropical glaciers in Colombia, perhaps we can be a little bit more proactive in trying to make sure we don't do the same mistakes for the glaciers, you know, in the western part of the US, in Canada, in the Himalayas or in the Alps. It's all connected, but the ones at the moment who have already reached their tipping point are the glaciers in the tropics. We're obviously running short on time as it's getting laid over in Svalbard. So I want to be respectful, but there's still so much I want to discuss. Why don't we do this? Would you be willing to come back next week on the show and we can dive into some more topics? I'd love to get into the social science side of things. And I know you have some exciting news to talk about as well. Could you make that work with everything you've got going on? Oh, absolutely. Count me in. I'll be back. Brilliant. Oh, that makes me so happy. Well, Dr. Sylvester, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I can't express how much I really loved our conversation. And you are such an inspiration to so many out there. So keep up the brilliant work. And thanks for all you do. And especially for sharing your passion for the glaciers of the world. Thank you, Brian. I mean, I must say it's been such a joy speaking with you today. And, and thank you so much for allowing me to share my love of ice. <laughs> well, it's been fun and an honor. Have a wonderful evening and looking forward to talking to you next week. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you have enjoyed this special conversation direct from Svalbard with Dr. Heidi Silvestra and learned a lot from her incredible work in the field. And maybe, just maybe, caught her infectious love of ice. <laughs> now, aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, meta, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Well, actually, Dr. Sylvester, you said you liked this bit, so you bring it home. <laughs> oh, I love this. <laughs> so do this for me. Please tell someone else about the show within the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees. 